All right, welcome to the Creating Structure podcast from Creating Structure Studio in Stowe, Ohio, and connected by Zoom with the one, the only, Mick Patterson in California. Mick, how are you doing today? I'm great, John. Nice to be here. It's great to have you. Mick's a podcaster as well and a, an experienced presenter, as many of you know, but um, he's been gracious enough to join me and we get to flip the tables here. So, um, yeah, let's get into it. Uh, we'll be talking about a variety of things. Architecture, facade, battle for the wall, mixed background, um, wherever we, we want to take it. We appreciate all the downloads so far. We're, we're six podcasts into this. We've got close to 450 downloads. We appreciate the audience and the people listening. So thank you. Uh, you guys mean a lot. Appreciate all your comments and feedback as well. So Mick, um, tell everybody, for those people who don't know you, tell everybody who you are, where you're from, what's your background, kind of who you are. Okay, so we got to go back a ways because I've been around for a while. Yes, sir. <laughs> so I spent the you know the first uh, thirty years of my life in Illinois, uh, a small town, Kankakee, south, about sixty miles south of Chicago. Uh, I went to school at University of Illinois. Um, started at majoring in uh, architecture. Uh, and it wasn't quite what I wanted to do. So I was in and out of different uh, design disciplines. I mean, my second semester of college, I, uh, I, I was majoring in, in art, which you know, I never had an art class in high school, which totally freaked my parents out. Right. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I had a hard time. I had, I, you know, architecture wasn't quite what I wanted to do. Uh, and, you know, I ultimately did like you know, three years of undergraduate work. And this was, this was in the late sixties. I, you know, went, went to, I, I graduated high school in 1967. Um, so if you want to know how old I am, I'm, I pretty much dated myself right there, but um, you know, uh, it was a great time to be on the college campus. I mean, it was really exciting. Yeah. Not much of it had to do with courses or, or studies or <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, so I had a I had a wonderful time. Uh, it was, um, you know, it, th there was certainly an education there, uh, although it, it wasn't very much academic. Uh, it, I really rooted myself in sort of an exploration of design, um, but like I said, architecture wasn't quite quite what I wanted, and I, you know, ultimately I ended up. Um, uh, you know, quitting because I was getting close to graduation and I wasn't where I wanted to be. I mm -hmm. uh, went out and worked for a while for a few years. Everybody told me I'd never go back to school, but I did. And I went back in architecture again because I didn't know what else to do. Good for you. <laughs> and, and again, I was in and out. And by this time, I was, you know, really good, uh, good friends with the dean of the architecture school, you know, and I would talk with him uh, frequently about, you know, my issues and, at one point, he said to me, "You know, uh, there's a there's a uh, over in the basement of the Fine Arts Building. There's this group, uh, you know, another school of industrial design, and I think you ought to go over there and talk to them. I think you might be interested in what they're doing." And I did, and you know, finally found myself. Uh, you know, it was uh, uh, so I, I ended up burning through uh, the rest of my undergraduate education and a semester of. Um, of graduate in industrial design. It was a great educational experience. I mean, I have really uh, relied on that throughout my career. It's very different, right? Uh, yeah. And it, it, but it allowed me to explore, um, 
you know, what I was interested in, which was were, were one of the building technology, building systems, you know, not four years of reinforced concrete theory, uh, geometries. You know, I was I was deeply influenced by by people like uh, Buckminster Fuller and and Conrad Voxman and uh, and these kind of people. And Bucky Fuller would come through, you know, the school uh, of architecture at U of I um, periodically at that time and. You know, there was a big open space in in the in the uh, first floor of the architecture school uh, gallery space, right? And we'd all, you know, crowds of kids would come. We'd sit on the floor. Bucky would start talking, and sometimes he wouldn't finish for six hours. <laughs> it was unbelievable. So, uh, you know, so a lot of a lot of influences going on there. You know. Was he a U of I guy? I thought, or was he an IIT guy? Or he was actually. Um, uh, Southern Illinois University SIU guy. Because a friend of mine here who's a, got a master's degree in carbon-carbon formulation of mechanical engineer, he went to S Southern Illinois University, and that's where I heard it, which is amazing yeah. that Bucky Fuller went to S SIU. Yeah, um, I, I lived down there for a while. Actually, uh, in yeah, he had a dome house there. Um, you know, he's, he, he's, uh, uh, I have a, a, a cap that he gave me, uh, you know, that was, I mean, it, it, yeah, it was, it was a, a very interesting time. He was a very interesting guy. So, so he would come and just lecture and you guys would have just sit at his feet and listen to Buckminster Fuller. Yeah. At U of I, he actually taught uh, courses down at SIU. I, I did not go to school there, so I didn't take any of the course, formal cor coursework, but you know, he was he was very active and did a lot of touring and a lot of speaking. And he I've never seen anybody speak like him. I mean, he would take you on, you know, on a journey through the cosmos. You'd start at some fairly, you know, concrete point and he'd take you out into the, the ethers, you know, and, and it, it, it was so riveting. And, you know, and you would you would periodically wonder where this was going, you know, how it all tied together. And then he'd bring it right back to that same spot. It was amazing. It was like a, a, you know, a concert or something like that. You know I mean? It was, it was really remarkable. So, you know, after all this time I've known you, I didn't know that you went to U of I or I forgot. Um, I have family from Joliet, New Lenox, Kankakee area. Uh -huh. Didn't know you were from there. Wondering if you know all the words to, Riding on the city of New Orleans, Arlo Guthrie, you know, of course, Kankakee. Yeah, absolutely. So are you a music? So were you a big time into the music scene in the 60s? Were you a student of the 60s music when you? Oh, went? yeah. Yeah. I'll bet. It was a it was a, a, a great time for music. It was a great time to to grow up. You know, I mean, I, I feel very fortunate. You know, my, my wife is a year younger than I am. And we talk a lot about, you know, how lucky we were to be growing up at that at that time yeah for sure it's still some great music yeah still absolutely. i was listening to some across on the dials the other day came across some led zeppelin and i i thought i didn't like these guys in high school but now that i'm older i'm like man did those guys make some great music yeah you know and a lot of others so that's that's a wonderful story so when you went back to school you went back to u of i right yes I did. I went back to your Trail design. And I find that fantastic too, because that's one of the career paths, one of the educational paths that I've seen stick in curtain wall. You know, you've got architects, you've got self-trained folks, you've got people that were, you know, trained in a field. You've got people that are 
engineers, mechanicals, but there's these industrial designers, industrial engineers, and it seems to be a good niche for them. You know, what I, what I value so much from that educational experience was that, that industrial design is really rooted in a study of material and process, which is so critical to, uh, to, to any kind of design, right? And it's so critical to architecture. And unfortunately, um, you know, a lot of our, our architectural programs are really failing, in my opinion, to adequately educate uh, these young people with respect to this really important aspect of material and process. So that was the, that was, you know, that was great. And then the other part of it is, you know, industrial design teaches problem solving, creative problem solving process, right? And it takes the mystery out of, out of creativity, right? How to, how to innovate, uh, you know, in, in a much more direct fashion than I find that most architectural programs do, right? I mean, you know, it, it's independent of product, right? So, you know, it can be automobiles, it can be medical equipment, whatever. And, and you do all of that in uh, an industrial design program. And buildings really is just another product. I, re I remember, uh, you know, a long time ago, a, a progressive architecture, you know, the old progressive architecture magazine that's no longer around, uh, a cover uh, uh, featuring Norman Foster's work. And it was called The Industrial Design of Buildings. Uh, which really, really resonated to me. There was an article in there by Thomas Fisher, who's the the uh, dean of the architecture school at the University of Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Really, a great article, and you know that's that's where I come from. Those are my roots there. Uh, Mick, do they teach any industrial design classes in any of the architecture programs in the United States that you're aware of? No, not that I'm aware of. Uh, the architecture schools tend to be very insular. They don't even like to, you know, to um, collaborate with engineering schools uh, and this kind of thing, which I think is really unfortunate. Uh, there's a lot of really good potential for collaboration there because architecture is inherently, uh, you know, at its best, so multidisciplinary. And there's so many, there's so much diversity that comes into building design. Agreed. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. We could go off on that the whole time because same with engineering. If if civil, mechanical, chemical, electrical engineering programs did one class in technical writing, one. Yeah. Or one class in that industrial design type process for everybody, which, of course, they can't because it's like adding a book of the Bible, you know, to get the, the curriculum change. Same with architecture. One class in industrial design, the materiality and process and all that, it could really revolutionize. You don't need much. You just need one. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I did, I did testing when I was, you know, I taught, a, I've taught uh, periodically at uh, USC, which is where I got my graduate, um, or I did my graduate studies. But uh, when I, uh, one of the courses that I taught, um, you know, back, 10 years ago or so, I tested the students uh, when they came in and periodically through the semester. And over half of the people, over half the students, and these were, you know, it was a combination of uh, masters, a couple undergraduate and a, a couple of PhD students. Uh, and over half of them could not, uh, could not um, correctly answer a question regarding the difference between laminated and insulated glass. 
You know, wow. Here's a product that is ubiquitous in the built environment. I mean, arguably, you can't find a more ubiquitous material in architecture these days than than glass. And yet, the students know so little about it. It's it's really stunning. It is wow. So I'm totally mesmerized even by the statement about Buckminster Fuller coming. Like I wish coming coming to your place. I wish I could have been there, but. So you went to U of I, you graduated now with a degree in industrial design? Yes. And then where'd you go from there? So I was um, looking around for for work, right? And, you know, the the interesting thing about industrial design was that that curriculum let me uh, really explore what I wanted to, what I wanted to do. So all of my, all my projects, uh, all the coursework that I did, most of it was, you know, I, I managed to like, like furniture. I built it, you know, the, the furniture class when all of my classmates, most of them were building pieces of furniture. I built this two story kid of parts structure with fold out tables and, <laughs> and all, you know, all these cubicles and this kind of thing. It was, it was all very, uh, very architectural. Um, and I studied geometry. I was really into, you know, close packing, uh, geometries and this kind of thing, and there there was nowhere to go with that in terms of a profession, right? So I was looking around for uh, um, an industrial design job. Uh, I was very close to um, take. I got offered a job with Hewlett Packard in uh, Colorado, and I was, you know, uh, close to taking that. Uh, but I had gone to. I got a scholarship from from the school to go to. Uh, the design conference at Aspen, which was an annual uh, event at that time, which has morphed into something else now. But I went to that and, um, you know, I got to meet Charles and Ray Eames. You know, I was this precocious uh, recent graduate with my 35 millimeter slide portfolio in, you know, in plastic. And I'm bothering these people to <laughs> to, to look at it, you know, and Ray and Charles Eames, I got to sit down with them and they, you know, looked at, they, they were so so uh, generous and, you know, uh, it just amazing, amazing experience to get them to critique my portfolio. But one of the featured pe- speakers was this guy uh, uh, named Peter Pierce. And he did this presentation and he was, he was, you know, a student of Bucky Fuller. He, he uh, had um, uh, co-edited uh, one of the synergetics books that, that Fuller did. Uh, and he was, experimenting he had a company called Sinistructics. they were doing uh kites and toys and games based on principles of geometry uh and had started doing playground systems and working towards you know architectural products and this was it for me i mean this is what you know this was exactly what i wanted to be doing so i made him give me an interview in an intermission between sessions while i was there and he said look I I really love what you're doing and I'd love to hire you, but I'm, you know, I just don't have enough business to do it, but let's stay in touch. So we did that. Right. And, you know, and it was about a year later and I was just getting ready to take this job with Hewlett Packard. And he called me up and said, I just got a big, uh, you know, commission with uh, Hitachi stereo for the consumer electronics store. We're going to build this two story, you know, space frame structure. uh, And, uh, he said, I can't guarantee you anything beyond three months of work, but I'd love to have you come. So I, you know, I threw all of my stuff into my 
72 Volkswagen station wagon or Volkswagen, uh, Datsun station wagon, tied my drawing board on top and headed west. That's how I came to Los Angeles. That's great. And so how long did you have that position? So um, we ran Synestructics for three years uh, and that morphed into uh, a, a company called Pierce Structures. And I, I shared a minority ownership position in that company. Uh, and I was involved in that company for uh, a, another nine years, I think. So it was a total of 12 years. I, I believe that I was uh, involved with, with uh, Peter Pierce. Um, and we we did, that culminated in the, the Biosphere 2 project, which... Okay. You know, you might you might be familiar with. We enclosed yeah. three and a half acres of uh, you know the desert in Oracle, Arizona, north of Tucson. Yeah, uh, in a in in this big airtight enclosure, uh, which is was the biggest project. We we built space frames all over you know the U.S. and Canada, and some even um, you know uh, in Asia. Uh, and uh, it, it was you know it was a phenomenal experience. I mean, you know the I joined them doing kites and toys and we transitioned into doing this full on architecture. And, you know, I, you know, I was involved not only in designing the space frame system itself, but figuring out how to, how to fabricate it. Uh, You know, I had to, I would do the design work on these projects in the daytime. And then, uh, you know, I, I hired welders to come in, design fixtures, set up the fixtures, uh, you know, uh, worked with the welders to make the parts on these early jobs, so it was a, a total immersion in this in this process. And then when when the parts were done, I'd follow them to the job site and work with uh, you know uh, uh, erection crew iron workers typically to put these things together. So it was it was an amazing experience for you know uh, a, a student you know to to come into this. And then culminating in the biosphere, you know, I mean, that was a, a, a pretty phenomenal project uh, by itself. There's been a lot, there's been a lot of books written and, and moved. There was a recent documentary called Spaceship Earth, something or other about that, about that project. Um, it was a prototype for space colonization, basically. Is it still operational? Yeah, it's still operational. It's, uh, I think, uh, owned and operated, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, by the University of Arizona. Um, the Society for Building Science Educators, SBSC, had their annual um, uh, retreat there uh, two or three years ago. And because I was involved in the biosphere, they invited me to come and, and, uh, and, and do a presentation there. So I, you know, I got to go back there. There's a, there's a, um, it's, they, it's, they use it as a conference site um, and they've got like a hotel kind of thing that, that is set up and, you know, it's still operational. I got to tour it. Uh, they're still uh, doing experiments and raising crops and it's not sealed. It's not the airtight enclosure, but they're still using it. That's fantastic. I had no idea. That's great. You were involved in biosphere. That's That's wonderful. So you're working in I guess we could spend a lot of time just talking about that. You've already hit on a lot of things, but I'm really interested then. So I can see the formation here with space frames and fabrication and such, you know, when did that lead to ASI or like, when did you get the bug with overhead or vertical glaze structures, exterior cladding? I mean, what was that progression? What did that look like? 
So, you know, the space frame thing was largely uh, an interest in geometric structures, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and as I worked through those projects, they always had glass on them. And it was in a lot of skylight applications. We built full enclosures. So the, you know, like we built the uh, headquarters for American Airlines uh, in, um, uh, in, in Fort Worth or between Dallas and Fort Worth or, you know, somewhere out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, so, so a, a, a glass curtain wall system stuck onto the facade of, of the, the space frame. And it always uh, struck me how, uh, you know, with space frames, you have this, this ge- strength of geometry, right? Uh, not, not just strength of materials, but strength of geometry and how that, that strength was never utilized. So you, you had the space frame structure uh, and then they they would come along and put this secondary glazing system on top of that uh, that cost you know two to three times as much as the as the structural system and they didn't use any of the inherent strength of the space frame system. So one of the things that we did when we did the biosphere structure was we integrated those systems deeply integrated them. So you're really using the space frame structure and. That's really how we got the glazing part of it. We first got the space frame part of it. Uh, we competed for the glazing part of it. And as this tiny little company, we were the 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 the, the first ones to really solve the airtight problem. Uh, you know, at a, for for uh, you know as an economic solution to that problem. Um, so you know that's kind of where 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 I was coming from. And so I, I got interested in the glass and interested in the curtain wall systems. Um, and we, um, and, and so I was, you know, the, the other influence that I had by this time in my career was, you know, and, and, you know, actually quite a bit before this were the European architects, you know, Foster, Grimshaw, Rogers, Piano, uh, you know, um, the center Pompidou sort of changed my life. You know I mean? It was, uh, an epiphany. Uh, and so I had been following these guys and at this point in time, this is like, you know, the 80s, you know, the late 80s, say, uh, and they're doing some really interesting glass work. You know, Peter Rice, uh, who's a, a personal hero of mine, uh, the um, Lavalette, the, the, you know, the glass houses at uh, Lavalette, um, the first point supported, you know, kind of kind of glass work. Uh, you know, and I'm watching this stuff. I'm looking at this stuff and and, and you know, but at this point, in the United States, we're sort of tailing out of the postmodern era, and it's all about punched openings and opaque walls. Uh, you know, if you looked at an, a, an architectural magazine at that time, it's not about glass at all, which, you know, today it's all about glass. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm working, I, I was doing business development at that point. Um, you know, uh, when I wasn't uh, working on the Biosphere Project, it was business development. I'm in the architect's offices, you know, the space frame thing was a fad, right? For, you know, it was, it was used for its aesthetics. Uh, and, and, and what I'm hearing is they're now telling me, look, you know, I don't want to do a space frame. There's too much busyness going on. I want to do something like what Grimshaw or Piano is doing in, in Europe. And I'm like, yeah, great. I'd like to do that too. Um, but budgets were, were a problem, right? I mean, even at that point, you were talking about you know, probably over 200 bucks a square foot for those kind of uh, structures in Europe. Mm. Uh, and these guys, you know, the budgets in, in the U.S. were like, 
you know, 50, 60 bucks a square foot was really pushing it. Right. Right. 50. So, you know, but I was looking for these opportunities. Right. And, and I started to find them because the architects are going, we want to do this. And so I wanted to be in a position where I wanted to be able to say, okay, we can do this, you know, let's do it. And we, we did that. I, I left Pierce with a couple of other uh, people there um, uh, that became my partners uh, in ASI. Um, and we just started that business. This is like 1991. There weren't the barriers uh, to entrepreneurs that um, there are now, right? Uh, you could, you know, bonding was around, but you could pretty much talk your way out of it. Uh, financial uh, strength was not the issue that it is now. Um, we were, we were, we basically started out uh, as a consultancy, yeah. And the architects would hire us, you know, to to help them design these these uh, these uh, highly transparent structures, right? Tension structures and this kind of thing, you know, really dematerializing the structural system. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, then it would go to the building team, and the building team would say, "All right, well, this is great, but who's going to fabricate it? Who's going to erect it?" So we were all builders. I mean, that's, you know, we were coming at this from a building standpoint. We weren't coming at it from a consulting, you know, design standpoint. So we said, well, we can do that, you know. And so like within a few months of the time that we started, we were a design build company, although a very small one. Yeah. Uh, And I mean, it's it's pretty funny. I mean, we did some amazing structures, you know, and we were... uh, largely borrowing from what we'd seen go on in Europe um, and figuring out how to, how to get it done in the U S and, you know, meet the budgets uh, that were, that we had to meet in the U S to do it. Uh, And there's a lot of really um, amazing experiences and amazing stories from, from doing that in that time. But we basically brought that technology into the U S marketplace uh, and enabled the realization of these early structures. And we had a, I don't know, three, four, five year run where there was really no competition. Uh, and we ended up running ASI for 16 years. That's fantastic. Was it all focused on overhead glazing or was it vertical glazing as well? It was, you know, um, it was mostly probably vertical. You know, we got into doing the cable nets, all of that stuff was vertical, uh, but we always thought of it as enclosures. So it was, you know, you, you reach that point where it doesn't really make any difference if it's vertical or horizontal, there's a transition, it's an enclosure, you know? That's right. So, okay, so that, that brought you into the 2000s, right? 91, I started my business in 94, you started in 91. And then you, did you go to enclose after that? Yeah, it was, you know, uh, so in the wake of uh, Katrina, 9-11, you know, that kind of stuff, the the surety market started to dry up. Uh, you know, insurance w- was a problem. Banks were a problem. You know, we, and we 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 had uh, so we're you know th- this whole sixteen years that, that we were running ASI. The problem was we were too far ahead of our time, frankly. You know, and the marketplace wasn't really ready to uh, to reward us for the risk that we were taking on and doing these projects, uh, most of which. You know, all of which basically we had never done before, and many of which nobody had ever done before. In the early days, we we borrowed a lot from, you know, the European solutions, but we quickly got into, um, you know, adapting 
adapting that technology into something that that better met the budgets in you know with our our U.S. clients. Uh, so it was really it, it was every project was highly custom. Uh, it was you know it was a, a high risk profile uh, work. So consequently, you know, and but we wanted to do it. We were committed. I mean, you know, it, it was a it was a pay to play scenario. I had a that's where I learned that term. I was trying to learn how to run a business, and I hired a consultant, and he heard me out and said, "Yeah, you guys are pay to play," <laughs> and that was true. We made a lot of money on some jobs, and other jobs we would lose a lot of money. So we never developed uh, the financial strength that um, that would have been really desirable Mm -hmm. uh we almost got there yeah Um, but we stumbled into you know the early 2000s and katrina and 9-11 and the the financial markets tightened up and it got very difficult for us to to be doing business we were sitting on the largest backlog of contracts in hand but they all required bonding and there was no talking your way out of it anymore Mm -hmm. uh and we just couldn't do it you know it was you know the sureties were looking for um you know uh, close to 100% collateral at that point, you know. Big balance sheets. Yeah. And so, you know, our, our biggest client uh, was enclosed at that point. So they were doing, you know, the the curtain wall on these tall buildings and we were doing the the podium level work, you know, or cable nets and that kind of stuff. Uh, and the owner got to know us and he'd walk through, you know, our facility periodically. And, you know, at, at, at a, at some point, he said, "Look, you guys are becoming a, a problem uh, for me because my bonding company now, in this tighter situation, is looking at all my suppliers and stuff, and you guys are problematic, you know, in your financial strength and bonding. So why don't we just merge, and you'll have my bonding line, which is an unlimited bonding line." Sure. Uh, so we did that. So we were basically we ended up being acquired by Enclose, and that's how that happened. Yeah, so that's a fascinating background. So you got inquired by Enclose, and I, that's when I met you was through Enclose. I'm surprised I didn't meet you earlier. For some reason, our paths never crossed. Um, and then you set up the Advanced Design Studios, which was kind of unique. Um, L.A., New York, and had worked with Facade Plus, I believe. Um, and then uh, through the evolution at Enclose, did you guys start the Skins Magazine when you were there? We started at uh, at Enclosed. We started um, uh, we started a newsletter called Skin Tech. Skin Skin Tech still goes on. It's still an Enclosed newsletter. We started a new newsletter at Facade Tectonics called Skins. Skins, gotcha. Okay, I missed missed that. Um, so, talk about the formation. You know, forming Facade Tectonics, which. You're deeply involved in. You're the you're the visionary behind that. Is that correct? Well, uh, that's that's a flattering way of putting it. I mean, uh, you know, it's uh, I I would would be flattered to claim that. <laughs> but I'll just tell you what happened. You know, I mean, I I was when the acquisition took place. I had um, there was a gap there of. Uh, you know, probably a year when my workload uh, dropped off, you know, and this was, you know, transitioning into enclosed. Uh, and, you know, so I had been doing some lecturing at, uh, at USC and it was, um, which I always enjoyed doing. And that was basically my feeder for staff. That's where I, I hired people from for ASI. Yeah. 
And I, I did a lecture at one point, and, and Doug Noble, professor at, at uh, in, in the Building Science School uh, School of Architecture at USC, said, "Are you? Would you be interested in getting more involved in in teaching?" And I said, "Yeah, I would, but you know, I never did. I you know, I left U of I and intended to work for a few years and go back and get my master's, but I never did do that." And he said, "Well, you know, it, it doesn't. You, you don't really need that." Um, you know, with your career experience, but, uh, but, you know, why don't you do it? You know, I can, you know, I can, I can give you advanced standing and, you know, come to the building. And, you know, I had actually taken some courses where, and I was very impressed with that building science school. It's a great school at, at USC in the school of architecture. It's a small program, great professors, you know, a really, really dynamite program. I was always impressed with it. So I said, okay, you know, and, I basically turned around on a, you know, a, a, a thirty-year career or whatever of do, of building these structures and looked at it from an academic standpoint, and it was an incredibly, uh, incredibly rewarding experience. You know, unexpectedly so. I, I didn't really. I was just going after the the degree because I thought, you know, it's now or never. Um, and you know, uh, one of the things that they made me do, for, you know, for credit was do a book proposal. I'm getting sidetracked here, but so forgive me, I'll get back to the, so I did this book proposal. Um, and, you know, as an exercise, as an academic exercise, and I had to submit it to, you know, five or six different publishers or whatever. And, um, uh, uh, it was, uh, it was accepted by, uh, you know, one of the publishers. So then I had to write the book. It was basically the, you know, basically the uh, uh, the thesis, you know, that I wrote for the the uh, master's master's of building science, um, but it turned out to be it turned out to take me a year to convert that thesis to you know the the book. It was one of the hardest things I, I've I've ever done. You know, still impressive to complete a book in a year. But while I was doing that, so to you know to get get so that's structural glass facades and enclosures. I did that book. You know, Wiley published it. It was you know. So that was, you know, that was fun, uh, hard, but fun. Um, and it, while I was doing that, uh, so I'm really into now academically studying these structural types and stuff. And that, that's what the book is about, sort of categorizes these structural forms and uh, creates a vocabulary that goes beyond, you know, normal building structure, right? And and uh, um, there was a... a I, 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 there's an a ongoing conference series to this day, I think, at Columbia University, which focuses on materials, and they take different materials. And this one was on glass, and it was called Engineered Transparency. Uh, and I found out about the last minute, and I hopped on a plane and flew out there, and it was a, a fantastic two-day conference. Uh, and there's actually a book uh, called Engineered Transparency by Michael Bell. Um that is, you know, is about the the content from that that thing. And it was a lot of Europeans, you know, 50% of the presenters there, I think, were Europeans. And, you know, I had this epiphany while I was there that there was this tremendous opportunity. First of all, there, there was this tremendous need for, um, for a discussion about the building skin, the relevance of the building skin. That was the epiphany. It was like, it's the facade system. This is the key to sustainable sustainability and resilience outcomes in buildings and urban habitat. You know, I realized that at this meeting and I thought, geez, you know, like the building science program at USC could have 
uh, could could focus on this area, you know, because there's so little educational programming going on uh, with respect to this in the U.S. So I went back to school all excited about this stuff. And I'm, you know, I'm laboring, you know, the the professors about, you know, uh, about this opportunity that I saw. And, you know, Doug was very receptive to it. And, you know, I also uh, recognize the opportunity for conferences, you know, addressing the building skin. Yeah. Uh, and so we did, we had a, a series of roundtables there, uh, invited people. And, you know, the first one, I think there were like 20, 25, you know, and it was always in you know, a mix of architects and general contractors and whatever. Uh, and it turned out that, yeah, there was a lot to talk about. Everybody wanted to talk about it. And that was 2007. Hmm. And it just started to grow organically from there so that within, you know, a year or two, we were holding small conference events on campus at USC. Okay. And and that just grew organically. Uh, you know, it kept getting bigger and bigger. And um, in 2015, so, you know, the idea there, Jen, was, uh, you know, we didn't want to just be an event, uh, you know, at the, at the same time in the, in, you know, back in this, a little bit later than 2007, I think about 2011, I started working in New York City uh, because of the advanced technology studio that we did for Enclosed. They wanted to do one in New York City. And um, I uh, met, went to a conference that uh, Diana Darling with Architects Newspaper had, had yeah. produced. I approached her with the idea of doing a facades-focused conference. So we started Facades Plus, which is still ongoing. And it's, it's, it's a great conference. And I was involved in that for like three years or whatever and did all the yeah. programming for that. Um, but, you know, w- what I really wanted to do, what the whole facade tectonics thing was about was, you know, not just about be- about doing events and conferences and that kind of stuff, but about creating knowledge assets that, that could be shared with our community. Right. And playing this educational role. And if you're going to do that, you need a home for this stuff. Mm-hmm. So it was really fundamentally different what we wanted to do. So in 2015. Uh, we took our first members and started what we called the Facade Tectonics Institute before it was just Facade Tectonics, right? And started the Institute, formalized the organization as a nonprofit uh, and and all of that, which is kind of where we're at now. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about there. I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, and, and maybe I don't want to put you on the spot. I think I was at the first, if not one of the first, Facade uh, plus programs. It was at UCSF in California. There was several hundred people. I remember. Um, I remember uh, the uh, Arctic project was featured there. Um, Mark Donatello was there. Right. Uh, some other guys from Walter P. Moore uh, sat with some ex colleagues of mine, John Fulton, and some guys. But was that the first one? Do you know? Was it? No, I don't think that was the first one. Although I'm well, the the my first one facade tectonics or facades plus facades plus, yeah. Jeez, uh, now that's a good question. I I do not remember what the first one was for facades plus. We did, you know, we're doing we were doing very quickly. I think like a half a dozen of of, of them a year, and good. you know now they're doing like a dozen or more a year. Yeah, uh, they had the big. So- and then they went to the smaller half day regional. I've attended some of those, but I just, uh, you know, they're both great organizations, Facades Plus through Architects Newsletter 
still going on, still some good folks. Facade Linux, which is very much cutting edge think tank. You're doing two, you were doing at least two major programs a year and you're doing some virtual stuff now, right? We're doing, uh, yeah, we, of course, like along with the rest of the universe had to go virtual. Um, Our our sort of signature event, if that's the right word, is our World Congress, which is every other year, uh, which is, um, you know, is a really interesting conference. It's a, um, it's entirely paper driven conference. So, you know, there are no keynotes, there are no, uh, you know, no, uh, uh, star architects, if you will, it's all, excuse me, people that have managed to navigate a paper through a double blind peer review process that's managed by, you know, uh, Doug and one of his colleagues at uh, University of Southern California. Uh, So really super high level technical content on a lot of these papers, although it ranges. I mean, amazing diversity of papers, right? Ranging from theoretical social issues all the way to the deeply technical stuff. Yeah, I, I uh, I was a reviewer one year. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the, the review committee is like close to 300 people. I mean, you know, it's it's a very inclusive uh, effort, which it needs to be right. And, and deliberately so. Yeah. So so we fast forwarded now with facade tectonics. I think the first time I heard the phrase the battle for the wall that may have been from you. Is that your phrase or did you pick up that phrase from somebody? I think it's, I think that phrase uh, fairly belongs to uh, the, to Glass Magazine, somebody associated with Glass. I think that's the first place that I ever saw it. It might be Tom Culp. No, you're right. Uh, For the wall with Glass Magazine. Right. And her team. So sorry about that. Um, But I love that term, the battle for the wall, because it speaks to what you talked about prior in that you saw this, this great need first of all, to bring materials and products kind of up to more of the European standard, like walls that could perform, but try to do it on this, you know, some compromised budget. And then you notice that people wanted to talk about the wall. And for years, as, as a consulting engineer, we recognized some of the same issues that came up over and over and over and over again, that, you know, it wasn't just about doing a shop drawing or some structural engineering. There was this holistic nature. You know, for instance, we'd get specifications 15 years ago, we get a spec that had thermal analysis. Yeah, we're not doing the thermal analysis. People throw out the thermal analysis. Yeah, we yeah. need calcs on this, you know. Well, we don't really need calcs. We don't really need you guys. We know how to put up wall systems. What do you know? Right. Yeah, well, that's why you had all kinds of consulting problems. So I love the fact that, you know, this through this organic process, you discovered that, hey, there's a lot of relevant topics here. People need to talk about this. And I like that phrase, battle for the wall. Helen and I touched on this some last time. She was talking about the study that Atelier 10 did about sustainability, that if the power went out on the hottest or coldest day and you were driven by mechanical system versus high-performing wall, it literally has impact on life and death and quality of being able to occupy a building or not. Right. So Yeah. Passive survivability. Yeah. I'm familiar with that study. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great study. So talk about what you're doing in facade tectonics. Talk about some of those relevant topics, the battle for the wall. They're like, you're a passionate guy. Um, you've driven a lot of kind of front edge technology and thinking like, what's really on your mind right now? What, what are you guys really focusing on? 
Well, you know, let, let me let me let me go there, but let me go there through the battle for the wall uh, because there's a there's something there that I want to talk about uh, because it it helps me differentiate what facade tectonics is really about. Um, the battle for the wall, as the glass industry uses it, is about is about the battle to maximize the use of glass in the wall. Gotcha. Okay? So it's a it's uh, it's a it's a, a vested interest. It's a it's an industry association, right? The National Glass Association. That's their agenda. And I've done a lot of speaking to the glass industry. I've been invited to you know to, to I've had that opportunity and that honor to speak to them. And my message has always been, um, don't try and dumb down the codes to serve your purposes, right? We, you need to be aggressive about embracing, uh, you know, these performance goals, right? And, and then helping the industry provide products that, that, that will meet these, you know, the, these, these, uh, these performance requirements. And, and, and this is why, you know, facade tectonics is material independent. This is one of the things that, that I love about facade tectonics. It's equal parts, uh, it, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because it's challenging to do this, but you know, we're, we're not, uh, we don't have these vested interests, right? We're material independent. You know, we're, what we're trying to do is create a neutral platform for knowledge sharing, which our industry is terrible at, right? Yeah. You know? And it's getting worse, right? With all the non-disclosures and all this kind of thing, we've short-circuited all of our feedback loops. So we're really trying to, you know, to uh, solve that problem uh, in the Institute. So it's something really important and something that can really, uh, really provide a major contribution to our industry, all of our industries, not just one industry, you know? Yeah, I like that. And to your point, you know, when people ask me what I do, I'll talk about, well, you know, curtain wall design and engineering and consulting, but well, who are your customers? And I'll say glazing subcontractors, but then I'll stop and I'll go, well, it's not just glazing subcontractors, it's exterior wall subcontractors, EWSCs, and fabricators and suppliers of components. Because to your point, there are many more forms and substances and material types of wall systems. And the opaque wall is often where there's the large number of problems, both thermally, um, structurally. Uh, you know, we saw the ACM panel clad building in England go up in flames. Right. Opaque walls along property lines, they're not coordinated with the, the front facades and seal lines. You've got, Helen and I talked about, you know, thermal bridging and all those things. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. To your point, there's many more systems and types and opaque and transparent walls. Um, so that that's a great part of facade tectonics because you're, you're a nonprofit, you're out there for, the entire building, right? The entire facade, the entire building. Right. So, yeah. I mean, this is what I, you know, what I would try to point out to the glass industry uh, is that, you know, you, you guys have done a fantastic job of delivering, uh, you know, increasingly high performance materials, you know, uh, addressing the, you know, the, the, the challenges to include, you know, the, the glass present in the building skin. Um, now, you need to start, you know, the biggest problem that you have is, is one of education, right? Every time a, a building 
uh, you know, a lead platinum or lead gold building underperforms is found to be an energy hog. Everybody points to the glass, you know, <laughs> and you guys suffer because of that. You know, what, what you need to be doing now is looking at the entire facade system, figuring out how to do that really well and educating the, 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 the design community about that. And I know that's not fair because it goes beyond the glass, but that is the reality for you, right? So it's about, it's about the opaque parts of the facade system, not just the glass parts. Mm-hmm. It's about the, the intersections between those systems, right? Between the opaque and the transparent systems. That is I mean, huge. Huge. Yeah, huge, huge. Uh, but you know, you ask the the uh, um, what I'm you know most interested in now, and you know, we talked a little bit about this you know before we uh, started the podcast, but uh, we just did our uh, New York City Forum last week, and um, it was it was entitled uh, you know. Uh, uh, pandemic pantry, digesting the lessons of COVID, whatever, something like that, you know? And, and you know, it, it was really about looking at what has the pandemic taught us about how our buildings are working in, in this new context, right? Okay. Which is really a manifestation, one of the unexpected manifestations, or at least largely unexpected manifestations of climate change. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and the answer is not real well, right? It's forced a level of um, of a, a, a adaptation in buildings, which has been difficult to achieve uh, and challenging in a lot of respects and different in different building types. So it was really interesting to explore this. But one of the things that um, you know that I pay a lot of attention to is you know I, in, in doing my uh, my PhD research which took me into a, a deep dive of sustainability inadvertently, right? I mean, I, I challenged the uh, sustainability of um, curtain wall retrofit practices in my initial uh, hypothesis. And uh, in investigating that, you know, I, I realized that the big problem uh, was that the people that designed these systems originally had no uh, idea that they would end up being renovated. They thought the building lifespan would only be 20, 30 years, and these systems would last that long, which they, for the most part, have. Now these buildings are 50, 60 years old, and these these uh, building skins, which never did perform very well, um, are really in need of retrofit, but there, there are very few options in retrofitting them, right? Short of stripping them off entirely and putting a new system up which is both very expensive um, and extremely disruptive to ongoing building operations, which is even, I think, a bigger problem than, than the expense. Yeah. Uh, and it, it pointed me to the fact that, so, you know, then at some point I realized, well, this is not just about these old systems. This is equally true of contemporary systems. Yeah. That- I have yet to see a curtain wall system that is designed to accommodate the ret- future retrofit that is for sure going to have to happen. You've right? always been big on the message of life cycle, long-term sustainability. I remember you talking about, I, I love the one presentation you did. You were talking about how long a building structure skeleton should be designed and engineered for and how long the facade structure should be. And that we should really be thinking ahead. 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember the presentation talking about how we should be able to have interchangeable parts, be able to pull things off and put them back on. We know glass lasts this long, metal lasts that long. It's really more of a long-term mindset, you know, like in Europe, I'm going to have a building for 500 years, not 25, right? Yeah. It's a fantastic topic. You know, it's like, it's like, it's one of the things that we know is it's very difficult to predict what our, you know, our reality is going to be, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, 100 years out from now. Yeah. There's very good reasons to suspect that, you know, that economically we're not, you know, society's not going to be in a position to, to spend a lot of money tearing the skins off of buildings and putting new ones up. That's been a challenge even in the, in the strong economic times of the, of the last decade, right? It's been a challenge to do that. And not n- nearly enough of it has happened. So, you know, to avoid building tomorrow's problems today, we need to anticipate the need that these, these systems are going to need to keep going for a long time with as minimal of maintenance and renovation as possible. That's and if you accept that constraint, it really changes the way that you design these systems. It sure does. But that is a great comment. Uh, that's a quotable comment. I like what you just said, because it's got to inform the design process. And maybe people, some of the people listening that are on the cost side or the contract side are thinking, yeah, ka-ching, 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 ka-ching. It, it does usually require more money, but it, it doesn't mean that it's going to double the price or triple the price or 50% the price. It just has to be thoughtful. We can't have line item myopia, right? We have to have a holistic view on the front end that if we spend a little bit more, some percentage more that there's a gain, but then we have to have ownership buy-in and all those other things in the supply chain. So it depends on building type, developer type, building typology, occupancy. There, There's many factors, right? Yeah, there are many factors. I mean, it's, you know, ideally, if we're really smart, we can figure out ways to do it better, cheaper, okay? But, you know, when you you know, when you look at the low hanging fruit, you know, like look at the glazing materials, right? I mean, we know that the the, the if we're going to meet the objectives for 2050, uh, the buildings that we're building now are going to have to be retrofit because they're not going to they're not going to make it, right? Mm-hmm. So so look, we 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 can pretty well predict that there's going to be better performing glazing materials. Uh, so it makes sense to have an easy way to change out those glazing materials without ripping out the you know off the whole facade system. Um, so a cassette system makes sense, right? A cassette system that basically what it does is facilitate the installation and removal of the, the glass panel itself, right? And, you know, the problem is it's, it's very difficult to do that without some incremental addition of material and design and, you know, engineering and that kind of thing, which adds a, a, a incrementally to the cost. Yeah, okay? not about it. So the problem, the biggest problem there is, you know, the fact that all of these things are evaluated not on a, on a life cycle costing basis, but on a first cost basis, which is absolutely right. ridiculous. You know, I mean, this should, uh, this is why we need legislation. This is why we need codes. I mean, this, this is not acceptable. And I hear this, you know, we hear this a lot at the, at the conferences that we do, uh, which I had somebody ask at a conference, which boils this question down uh, to me in my mind is, can we afford sustainability? You know, and the, the answer that the, not the answer to that question, but the question I ask is, can we, can we, 
What, what does it mean to not be able to afford sustainability? Can we actually consider not affording it? I mean, right. You know, no. we, have to, we have to figure out how to do it. We've got, and if it costs more, we got to pay more. We have to pay. If sustainability costs more, we have to pay for it. There's no question. Right. And it will influence then other factors in the building design and engineering and construction and, and change the tone and context of it, as will COVID. That is, oh my gosh, I could go on with you all day about that. Because, hey, I'm, a, I'm an engineer. I'm a consultant. I understand the realities of cost. We understand there's a, a market cost for us. There's a market cost for our customers. Um, and by the way, quick aside, to your point about codes and standards, sometimes I have people say, well, you know, John, that's code. You're, you're, you're benchmarking it to code. And I say, you know, let's look at the cover of the code. It says, minimum requirements for building structures, minimum, not maximum. But oftentimes the mentality is, oh, well, that's building code. Yeah, but that's the minimum acceptable. And that's what we benchmark to. We don't benchmark to something more than the minimum unless you've got a really savvy owner architect and they're demanding that this is going to happen, right? Right. Yeah. But I, I think it's really important that we push these minimums up as quickly as possible. And, you know, unfortunately, because of the cost issue, that is really not happening, right? I mean, we're dealing right now, our advocacy group is uh, talking with the uh, California Energy Commission, uh, you know, the case group that's doing the Title 24 stuff. Uh, and, um, you know, their criteria is based on being affordable, right? It's gotta be cost effective. Any solution has to be cost effective. Uh, and they won't they won't raise those um, you know those minimums if it is not cost effective to do so. And that really you know that you know what we're what we're trying to point out to them is if you build that in to the way that you're thinking about moving these codes, you are not going to achieve the 2030 uh, goals that are in place now for California that are in place that you know that we're supposed to be doing. Right. And listen, I I am sensitive to. You as an applicator have been sensitive to, and our customers often, are, you know, they are sensitive to the cost paradigm, you know. But to Helen's point and some of our other discussions, you create a better landscape for competition to drive costs down. You know, for instance, NASA, the space program, it created some amazing technologies that eventually drove the cost down. Right. You, you, you've got, you can't get to that economy of scale. Right. Unless you're driven there. Right. It's a competitive landscape. I mean, yeah, I recently looked at a customer asked me to take a look at their bid. You know, the, the cost of aluminum they had in that bid is the same now as the cost of aluminum my old boss, Gary McKissick, was using. Actually, it was three cents a pound cheaper now than 1988. Come on. That's a pretty darn good bargain for aluminum. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of... so. Okay, that's just one example. It's a commodity uh, product, but thermal brakes, warm edge spacers, those things have come down in price relatively. The cost of electronics have come down in price. I mean, we all know that we can walk to Walmart or Target and carry a TV home under our arm. Our parents used to have it delivered on a forklift, right, for a thousand bucks. Right. And these kind of things can create a more competitive landscape. So when you know people are listening to us, they're like, oh, yeah, easy for you guys to say. You don't have to build it. No, actually, we have to support the people that build it, and we have to be sensitive to cost. But, yeah, it, it, it makes it more of a one-off when it's not established as a standard, right? 
Right. Right. So, exactly. Um, man, we're, yeah, we, we've, you know, we've one more comment, you know, it's like to, to your point, we have innovation in, in buildings in this country has suffered because of the, the lack of those drivers. I mean, look at the innovation that we saw in European technology that was driven by the energy crisis in the seventies and their, their adoption of very, very demanding building codes, right. Which, you know, demanded, you know, the, the, uh, having of, or, uh, you know, uh, even more uh, of energy consumption in buildings in a two to three year time period. And it drove uh, the development of facade technology forward to where they're, you know, they were a couple decades ahead of us, right? So that really drives innovation. We're, you know, we are lacking that. Our cheap energy prices and our lack of, of, uh, of more aggressive building codes is really a barrier to innovation in our industry. Great comment. Wow, we are up against time here. Um, it's, I'm always so jazzed up to talk with you, man. Like it just, it gets my juices rolling. Um, oh, it's fun, John. Oh, uh, it is. So there's, there's so much to talk about. You know, it's amazing. Yeah. So any, I mean, you've left us a couple of good nuggets. Um, Helen mentioned an initiative you're working on. I think you guys are developing a kind of a comprehensive paper. What's one of the main initiatives Facade Tectonics is working on right now, apart from the programs and seminars? Well, there's a there's a few different things. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I am most uh, excited about um, is our uh, uh, advocacy committee that Helen is chairing. Uh, you know, there's that's a response to the recognition that we're not going to see the kind of acceleration in change that we're looking for without impacting policy. So, you know, unfortunately, none of us have, you know, any real policy experience. So we're wading into this thing, uh, you know, uh, as newbies, but Helen is doing a great job. Uh, You know, she's, um, you know, we've had a, a really significant response to an RFI that was put out by the Department of Energy, their Windows Technology Group. Uh, and now we're interfacing with, uh, you know, the the Title 24 people, uh, as I talked about. So that's, I, I think that's really important. We have a, a working group put together, which is wrestling with uh, facade metrics. How do you compare, evaluate and compare one facade system with the next? You know, it's like Council for Tall Buildings and Urban Habitat has this great measure of building height. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody understands that it's really easy yeah. and straightforward. But when you look at the building skin, you know, it, there are so many variables, uh, so many considerations, often competing considerations that converge yeah. at the building skin. How do you create a set of metrics that are relevant and meaningful? Uh, you know, so we're wrestling with that, which is really interesting. And, you know, it, it's Interesting that there is no real guideline for high-performance facades uh, in the marketplace, right? So, you know, we're looking at the possibilities of, of you know, just defining these metrics to start with and then uh, manifesting that maybe in a set of guidelines, maybe in a rating system, whatever. We're just considering that. So we have a number of initiatives. I mean, the, the you know, the basic um, mission of, uh, of the Institute is education and research base. So we have a research committee, we've got an education committee, uh, we've got the policy committee, we've got this, you know, working group, we've got a number of other committees, there's a lot of stuff going on. And if any of you are that are listening, uh, have any of a, of a nugget of facade geekdom in you, 
<laughs> Zod Tectonics is the place to go. I strongly encourage you to uh, support us as members, you know, at minimum and wade into it if you're at all inclined and, and can elbow out a little bit of time in your day to day. I like that. You have just coined a great new term, facade geekdom. I like it. It's perfect. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I, I coined it, but, uh, but well, yeah. great term, facade geekdom. Um, I know that we're, we put it in our budget for 2021 uh, to get back involved. I was going to say to the audience out there, you know, consider joining Facade Tectonics. It's a great think tank, cutting edge, front edge organization, very academically and research driven, as you said, very compelling. Uh, I've always been very edified by the uh, the times I've spent back in the day when we could all meet face to face, right? Yeah. <laughs> back in the day. It's it's now I get, um, it's nice to see you just even on a, a Zoom meeting, you know? <laughs> it's nice to see you as well. Um, and I started No Shave November a ways in advance. Um, of course, there's no video on this. It's going to all be audio. But so um, I guess we're going to wrap up. We've been at it a while. Um, he's Mick Patterson with Facade Tectonics, formerly with Enclose, ASI, uh, industrial designer, architect, teacher, entrepreneur, um, thinker, facade geek uh, in the geekdom of facade, as they say. Uh, I'm John Wheaton with Wheaton Sprague. This is the Creating Structure Podcast. Mick, you are on, although you're not heavy volume either, you're on Twitter, right? Yeah, I'm not much on Twitter and Facebook. I'm mostly LinkedIn. I'm not a big social media guy. Right. I'd be happy to hear from anybody, uh, you know. Uh, so LinkedIn is your primary platform? Yes. They can find you, Mick Patterson, M-I-C, Mick Patterson at, on LinkedIn, I think it's uh, am I? I think it's am I? You know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, I'll tell you what it is. Maybe you can put it in the show notes or something like that. In the, I'll put in the show notes your Twitter handle, LinkedIn handle, um, Facade Tectonics uh, link, and, and my Facade Tectonics email too. I'll give you Facade Tectonics email. That's great. Uh, there's variable membership classifications at Facade Tectonics, so you can enter at a membership level, an organizational level, a sponsor level, various levels um, that unlock different um, rights and capabilities or responsibilities. So, man, it's been great. I, I could have talked for a while on the whole Illinois Kankakee connection, the whole Buckminster Fuller. You know, I'm in Northeast Ohio, the American Society for Metals in Northeast Ohio on Route 87, about literally two miles from where my parents lived when I went to high school. It has a large geodesic dome uh -huh. All aluminum. It's all an open structure with a, a variety of materials. Geos. My dad was a metallurgical engineer, so he would literally take us on walks to the American Society for Metals headquarters on Route 87 in Novelty, Ohio. A little plug there. But that oh. was Mr. Fuller thing, too. Just a big, beautiful geodesic structure supported on the corners with uh, some concrete pads. Really, really cool place. Um, the, the University of Illinois connection, IIT connection. There's a variety of things. I love to know what's on your music list, but we'll save that for a different time. Um, so anyway, well, maybe maybe I can pull you into uh, one of my podcasts and we can just carry on with the dialogue. Anytime. Um, give me an advance. I know we're booked out until mid-January on this podcast, and I'd love to have you again if you have time. So again, man, thanks for your time. And, uh, My pleasure. Thank you, John. My very best to you and your network. Happy holidays. You as well. Happy holidays to you, Mick. Have a good night. Okay, you too. Thank you. Take care. Bye -bye.
We'll be back next time.